Albert in the Tijuana Brass Meets. It's time once again for a white-hot edition of Fangraphs Audio. Hello, I'm Carson Sestouli, host of Fangraphs Audio. And today we bring you a very special guest, a resident of Portland, Oregon. Our guest today is captain of industry and inventor of Big League Chew, Rob Nelson. As you'll find in the interview that follows, Rob Nelson is a shy character, very reserved, with little inclination to talk to someone like me. However, through a series of prodding questions, I get him to divulge the story, the creation myth that is, of Big League Chew, as well as talk about his twin careers as captain of industry and left-handed pitcher. Specifically, Nelson brings us back to those days in the summer of 1977 when he and Jim Bouton invented the idea for Big League Chew. He tells us how a bubblegum tycoon spends his days. And finally, Rob Nelson, who I'll unreservedly call an idea man, discusses some ideas he's worked on that you may not know about. My interview with Big League Chew inventor Rob Nelson on this edition of Fangraphs Audio. I've done my job correctly in the introduction. Uh, you will very well know that my guest today is the uh, the inventor of uh, Big League Chew, uh, an idea he came up with some time ago. Uh, and we'll, I don't want to give too much away. We'll get to the sort of creation myth of that in a bit. Uh, besides being uh, the inventor of Big League Chew, uh, he's an idea man, a captain of industry perhaps, one of the nicest captains of industry there are, uh, former left-handed pitcher on at least two maybe three and or four continents and uh, again really uh, one of the gentlest giants around his name is Rob Nelson Rob how are you doing very well Did, how many con- first of all first of all Rob how many continents ha- uh, have you been paid to pitch uh, in baseball games <laughs> that's a funny question the answer on the pay part is one one okay uh, <laughs> you know because there are certain limits there, but uh, in terms of getting the chance to pitch, you know, Africa, Europe, uh, Australia, U.S. That's a lot of, that's uh, more continents than people might even assume that baseball's uh, being played, I would say. I think people know that there's Australian baseball, uh, but Australia, did you say Europe as well? Yeah, I pitched in London for the Enfield Spartans in the British National League uh, for about five seasons, and it was just a delightful experience. I lived in the north end of London and uh, pitched on the weekends for just one of the game's great owners, a fellow named Malcolm Needs. And uh, did you have? Uh, is that were you a fireballer in that league? <laughs> not, not exactly. You know, I, I I think I had a little luck over the years, being number one left-handed, and and number two the fact that I could throw a little bit of a breaking ball over the plate. Even with a two and old count, and I think that accounts for for a lot. As long as you keep the ball in play, part of my baseball pitching life was pretty much what Woody Allen said about about life, which is ninety percent is just showing up, <laughs> and, and that's basically that's basically what my pitches did. They just showed up, and and lucky for me, a lot of line drives got caught because I did it for thirty years. I, I still find it, you know, preposterous. Yeah, and in fact, uh, well. We can get to all this in a little bit. I, I actually have seen you pitch, though, for the uh, for the Codgers, right? That's right, the Portland Codgers. Yeah, I actually might have seen your last pitching appearance. I'm not sure, though. Uh, it's possible. We lost 3-2 in the quarterfinals. And, uh, you know, unlike Brett Favre, I knew when I had uh, peaked, and it was it was easy to walk away from the game at 60. Yeah, know? right, right. Now, listen, um, 
we, we can get to your playing days later on. There's there's enough there to talk about. The the thing I want the place I want to start though is uh, a with the fact that you are you are basically you are the inventor of Big League Chew. I want to get to the creation myth in a second, but I kind of want to the, the reason you're here now is because there's been some news recently about uh, Big League Chew. Um, I guess where it's been manufactured. Uh, can you can you tell us the story behind that? Well, uh, lucky for me, when I came up with the idea for Big League Chew Bubblegum back in the summer of 77, one of my teammates was Jim Bouton of, of Yankee and Ball 4 fame, and he became my business partner and uh, was skillful and tenacious enough to strike a deal up with uh, a small division of Wrigley, and we stayed with the Wrigley company for, for over 30 years, uh, up until... Right around the time, maybe two years ago, when the Mars company bought out Wrigley, uh, I pretty much could see the writing on the wall and uh, decided to approach the Wrigley people, and I still had a couple of years left on the agreement, and asked them if he would help me find uh, a new place to, to manufacture and distribute the gum, because it seemed obvious to me that the business model that Mars and Wrigley had didn't include a brand as small as Big League Chew. And lucky for me, Big League Chew uh, uh, had those 31 years with Wrigley. And also lucky for me, the people at Wrigley were hugely helpful finding me a new place for Big League Chew to call home. And, and where is that home now, then? Well, it's a small company in, in western New York. It's Ford Gum. And they are mostly known for bubblegum balls and those big machines that you see all over the place. Basically put a quarter in and get a big round ball of bubble gum, but they wanted to branch out into new areas, and when they found out Big League Chew was available, uh, they, they pursued me like a, uh, I suppose, like Notre Dame would recruit a high school quarterback. It was, it was very flattering to be, to be wooed the way that Ford Gum did. And so, and so now they'll be, now is there anything like for the consumer um, is the consumer going to see any difference in Big Lee Chew, like whether it's, you know, like something like the consistency of the gum or the amount of flavors available or anything of this sort? Well, the factory that Wrigley had been using for a number of years was in Mexico. And part of my agreement to uh, get out of my uh, situation with Wrigley was I bought all that equipment and had it shipped up to just outside of Buffalo, New York, in Little Akron, New York. And... Uh, the Ford gum engineers uh, put Humpty back together again. It was quite quite a, uh, a project for them, but they did get all the equipment put together. We uh, tweaked the formula a little bit. Uh, I think the flavors stand out a little bit more. It's still going to be original grape, uh, sour apple, and watermelon, just the big four. Uh, but the gum is going to be, if anything... Uh, Certainly as good as it's been for all those years, and and our hope is that it's going to be a little bit better too. Now, are you uh, in, in terms of like the the flavors or whatever? Um, and and I've I've known you for a little bit now. I've never asked you this question, but um, I mean, are you are you uh, do you have the last word so far as this goes? Like, if if you're going for a grape, uh, you say, oh, it's not it's not grapey enough. I mean, is that is that is that part of your job? Well, that's part of my job now. It was it was less the case with Wrigley. Because frankly, it's a little hard to tell the Wrigley gum people how to make gum. Yeah, they've yeah. done it for a, you know a hundred plus years, and 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 they were terrific. But with Ford gum now, we can try a few things. There are a few flavors I would like them to 
to reintroduce. I've always been a big fan of cherry big league chew. But all that stuff is, is going to happen down the road. Right now, I love the four flavors that Ford is going to be manufacturing. And I think their main job is to just uh, let, let the people in the world of confections know that, that Big League Chew is now made in the USA. Uh, the Ford gum guys are very keen and very accessible. And uh, I think it's, uh, I guess, pun intended, it's a Big League product. Uh, <laughs> now, uh, so can you take us back then just to kind of like the, uh, the humble beginnings of Big League Chew? You, you said the summer of 77? Well, humble is the word. I mean, Jim and I were, were Portland Mavericks, the team that was owned by Bing Russell, who was best known for two things. He was the deputy sheriff on the Bonanza TV series, and also he uh, was the father of Kurt Russell, uh, the actor who for one season was also a teammate. He was also a Portland Maverick. Now, were the Mavericks... And it was a uh, great... Oh, yeah, sorry. Were they, an sorry. Affili- were they an affiliated club, or is that... Is the Mavericks were an independent team. They, they were Mavericks before the word became kind of part of the uh, everyday language. Most of us had either never signed with anybody or had signed and been released two or three times. So we were guys who were really looking for one more chance to play uh, a summer of professional baseball. And, and okay, so you met Bouton. I mean, how did you end up on the Mavericks in the first place? I was pitching in Cape Town, South Africa. Uh, my second season there, and I got a huge packet uh, from my dad of news clippings, mostly stuff from the Sporting News and the New York Times and, and various other stuff. My, my parents by then had, had moved to uh, uh, Connecticut and uh, had sent me this big packet of uh, information that I just devoured uh, over uh, over breakfast with my teammates. And there was an article that said Portland was going to have a single-A independent team and anybody could come and try out. And lucky for me, we played winter baseball in Cape Town. So when the season ended there in April, I went back to Long Island and did some substitute teaching and then uh, made enough money to fly out to Portland, try it out for the team, and eventually made the ball club. Okay, and, that, and then that's where, uh, that, now that's where you met Jim Bouton? That's correct. Jim pitched in the summer of 75 and then came back in the summer of 77. Uh, I was a Maverick for three summers and amazingly got one win out of three years. So there are, as my brother Ed would say, one of the few guys who pitched briefly and ineffectively for three years. But uh, uh, I threw a lot of batting practice, sold tickets on the phone, and, and did what I could because I not only loved that team, but I just absolutely fell in love with the city of Portland. And, of course, uh, I still live here now with my wife and kids. Right, right, right. So, so how was it? Now, when did the idea uh, come to you? I guess, and then, and then, how did you get it from, uh, I guess, like an idea to, you know, sort of a marketable concept? I mean, it, it's all kind of amazing how lightning fast it happened. If you remember the '70s or have seen photos of the '70s, the teams had just dreadful uniforms, complete with the uh, waistbands and the white sho- the white shoes. So we had the pullover tops. It was an all-red uniform and garish white shoes. And sitting in the bullpen, there's not much to do out there except a few teammates would take turns trying to spit tobacco juice on each other's shoes. And they had a point system for who was the best for accuracy and intensity. It was absolutely repulsive. And as luck would have it, Bouton turned to me and he said, have you ever chewed tobacco? 
And I said, I tried it once, and I just don't get it. I think it is the dumbest thing <laughs> that, that is a part of baseball. And Jim said, same with him, that he tried it once and just never again went after it. And he said, I just think it's really repulsive. And it was maybe a half inning later when I said to Jim that, you know, I've had an idea for quite some time that if we shredded bubblegum uh, and put it in a pouch, we could look as cool as these guys, but we would never get ill. And plus, we could blow some seriously good bubbles. And I remember right at that time that Jim's eyes got really big and he had this dopey grin on his face. And he said, you know, I could sell that idea. That, that is a really fun idea. And then he said, what would you call it? And I had a few names, but I said, I don't know. The name I think fits the best is Big League Chew. I mean, it was really the, the, the moment we had that conversation, it was maybe a half a minute later when I said Big League Chew. So on a handshake, Jim and I became business partners and over the next year or so uh, worked on it a little bit, not too seriously, until Jim really put his foot down and said, Rob, you've got to make some samples. I think you've got a good idea. And and then the, the my good fortune continued. I happened to be at a, a Cornell Club of, of Portland function, and uh, one of the alums there was a fellow named Dan Chernoff, and that was a name I recognized because I ran the Little Mavericks baseball day camp. Uh, and there was a Scott Chernoff in the camp, and I approached Dan and I said, are you the father of Scott Chernoff? He said, in fact, I am. I introduced myself and and told him that uh, I was transplanted from the East Coast and that I was uh, uh, working on a, uh, a number of things. At the, by that time, I had gone to work for the, the Jugs Baseball Pitching Machine Company. But we just kicked around a lot of ideas, and Dan told me that he was a trademark and patent guy, uh, had a, an established firm here in Portland. And I said, well, maybe you can help me. I've got an idea. And I told him all about it. And it was largely because of Dan Chernoff, uh, electrical engineering at Cornell, 1959, <laughs> who uh, did all the legal work. Jim put up about $10,000 to do everything that needed to be done in terms of prototypes and, and uh, legal protection. And then Jim just went knocking on doors. Interestingly, I went back to South Africa to play ball. I, uh, I made enough money to spend the winter, you know, in the sunshine rather than in Portland, Oregon, which is a pretty good move on my part. Yeah, that yeah that uh, that does sound smart uh, from what I know of Portland's winters. Um, so so this is all sort of going on, and then what? When you come back, it's it's ready to go. Is that the idea? You know, n not only that, Dan Chernoff. Actually, Jim Bouton called me and he said, Rob, I need to know our trademark number because I've got us a contract with the division of Wrigley. Yeah. He said, I don't know the number. I will get back to you. And I called Dan's office and I said, Dan, could you give me our trademark number for Big League Chew? He said, Rob, you don't have a trademark yet. You have an application number. We didn't even own the trademark before Jim Bouton had sold the idea. It was just preposterous how, how the thing just, everything just seemed to click. So we had to go back to Wrigley and say, look, we do have the trademark applied for, which means, of course, if we get it, nobody else could because we applied for it first. And, of course, that's how it worked out, and that was good enough for Wrigley. Interestingly, our first deal with, uh, with the people at Wrigley was only a three-year contract. I think they looked at it as a fun novelty. And, again, timing is everything. Uh, uh, Amaral Confections was the small division that we were working with at Wrigley, and they had just perfected a machine to shred bubblegum that would stay shredded and not clump together. And they really didn't know how to market it. 
And, What's and, always been interesting to me is the integrity of the people at Wrigley because they could have taken my idea and produced home run bubblegum or Grand Slam bubblegum or something like that because I don't own the patent on shredded gum any more than McDonald's owns a patent on chopped meat. But I did have a terrific trademark and, uh, and, and a good branding notion, and, and that was enough for the Wrigley people, and they were true to their word for, for over three decades. Oh, that's so. So when did you? When did it become clear that? Uh, I mean, so you had fun with the idea, and you had some luck in sort of you know being able to trademark it and sell it. When did it become clear that it was you know because people have a lot of ideas. There are a lot of ideas out there that even when uh, they're sort of follow through upon, uh, you know, they don't they don't succeed. I guess. When when did it become clear that it was going to be successful? And you know, how did you know? Well, when Jim negotiated the three-year deal, uh, I remember telling my family that, well, it looks like I, I won't have to paint houses in the summer. Uh, I was thinking that I'd be a baseball coach in some high school, pretty much like my coach, Mr. Lang, back on Long Island, and uh, I'd be teaching English or, or, or something somewhere, and I'd have the summers off because I'd have a little bubblegum nest egg, and it turned out to be ten times larger than that. But when when did I know that we were onto something? I think at the end of the first year when they sold eighteen million dollars worth of big league chew. Oh yeah. And the following years, the following year the Cubs were sold for twenty one point five million. And I remember telling my dad, Chicago Cubs, they meaning the Wrigley family, uh, they replaced the Cubs with with shredded bubble gum, and we all laughed about that. You know, yeah. I never thought that the gum would maintain that level. Uh, it was a novelty in the beginning, and, and of course it didn't. It became about half that. But but even as a $10 million brand for, for 30 years, uh, and, and, and a guy like me, and, and guys like me and Jim getting a small royalty, you know, we didn't become, uh, you know, obscenely wealthy, but we became comfortable. And in my case, it was great because I was comfortable and anonymous, which is way better than being rich and famous because, you know, you could go on with your life as you wanted to. Yeah, well, so here's the thing. How does a gum tycoon like yourself... So, you, I mean, this has been you, essentially, for the last 30 years, right? I mean, that's been a... The Big League brand, uh, you know, Big League Chew has existed for 30 years. I'm sure, you know, you've been, you know, obviously involved in doing that. But, like, how do you spend your days, I guess, is my question. I mean, what... So what well, for, for, well, that's a good question. And for about 30 years... Uh, I worked in the marketing department of uh, the Judd's Pitching Machine Company and helped with advertising and design and so forth. And uh, uh, and then would take a few months off a year because at that time it was a very seasonal uh, company to work with. And John Paulson is the fellow who hired me, uh, the fellow who created the Judd's Baseball Pitching Machine. And, and we got along great. And uh, I was able to do a lot of work for him even when I went back overseas, first back to Cape Town, then over to Sydney uh, to play ball in the New South Wales Baseball League, uh, I was just able to, with modern technology, get the kind of marketing ideas to him and just keep in touch. And, and quite frankly, the gum was probably 90% of my income, but that other 10% of working in, in marketing and advertising was really challenging and fun. And then on top of that, for the last 2006 or 27 years, uh, I've run a baseball camp back on Long Island, on the east end of Long Island, just for a couple of weeks every summer, just as kind of a way to reconnect to where I grew up and uh, and also to kind of 
keep myself involved with the game uh, that has been so kind to me. Right now, because I know from knowing you in Portland, you know, as far as I can tell, the the thing you do, like your basic job, is to have lunch with people. Is that accurate? Or I mean, at this point, that's all, that's all I can tell. As far as I know, you just have lunch out with with important people all the time. Well, you know, I I, I like to think you're important, and and, and so so do my friends. But you know, uh, a lot of good ideas have come out of those two hour lunches, and. Uh, has moved me along into into other things, but yeah, I would I would say that's that's a fair assessment. <laughs> you know what you just said. What you just said reminds me of uh, the story I'd heard about Senator Kennedy when, when JFK was uh, uh, campaigning uh, in in 1960. When one of the coal miners in West Virginia said that one of my mates here says you've never really worked a day in your life. Is that true? And uh, and Senator Kennedy said, Well, yeah, that's about right. <laughs> so I, I always I always admired him for that because he didn't try to say that no I can relate to coal miners you know as well as anybody he just basically was honest and said yeah in a sense that's 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 probably true so in in, in some ways yeah that's true I, I do lunch with really interesting people you know our friend Rob Nyer always keeps me on on my toes uh, you know as did you when you were in town but because I've got a good mix of people in the world of Education and marketing and theater and whatever—it uh, always keeps my my brain percolating, and that's why the I think I'm going to have some some success, some luck with two or three other ideas that I've been working on. Well, let's uh, let's talk about you know I um you know I understand that there might be some sensitive information, but but uh, for those people who don't know you, uh, I can I can say uh, I can vouch for you that you are officially an idea man. Um, I can also say with some authority that. Some of your ideas are like legitimately crazy. Um, just just one, for example, uh, you and I have a mutual acquaintance, Brian Steelman in Portland, Oregon, um, who owns uh, who owns a taco uh, a taco restaurant, you know, a Mexican restaurant there uh, called. Um, oh, I'm blanking. What is it? What is it called? Uh, no. no, right. Delicious, uh, delicious tacos, uh, excellent ingredients. And you suggested to Brian Steelman that he opens a place, uh, a, another Mexican restaurant in Tacoma, and call it Taco Ma. Uh, I mean, where would you rate that? that brilliant, brilliance is simplicity, right? I mean, <laughs> our city, our city says it all. I mean, how many cities could you go to that tell what your your business is? I mean, Taco Ma. I came up with the idea driving by the yeah. Tacoma Dome. On the way to uh, uh, to a Mariners game yeah. uh, up in Seattle, and I, you know, I I've always played with words. I mean, that was a bullpen game we used to play. How many different words could you create from the outfield signs, and uh, you know, moving the letters around and seeing just dopey things out there? Taco Ma just just kind of stood out, and uh, so there it is. Brian, you know, he's. Uh, He's probably 50-50 on the idea. He's got his second 4K no open here in Portland, so he's got enough. He's got enough on his hands. But someday, up in some of the college neighborhoods in Tacoma, uh, when you up there and see world's greatest tacos out of Taco Ma, yeah, you could say, "Oh yeah, that was that was that was the Big Lee Chew guy." That was Big so Lee Chew guy. Yeah, you never know. So, what are your other uh, Rob? What are your other big ideas these days? What what else are you working on? Well, I, you know, I've had a board game that amazingly won a uh, a prize from the American Mensa Society, and it's a simple five in a row game, and I've been working on it for literally two decades. 
I uh, I met my wife 20 years ago this month, and it was the same month that I started working on on my board game. So that was a good and, month. Uh, that was a good month then. It was a gr- it was a great month for me. You know, we uh, we find it you know hard to believe that I was a a uh, eccentric left-handed single ball player. You know, in his early 40s, and uh, here we are 20 years later with seven-year-old twins and 11-year-old daughter and and a wife who still likes me <laughs> and uh, and a board game that I still think is going to you know somehow be on everybody's coffee table but. You know, it, it, the board game is the exact opposite of Big League Chew, which took, you know, about 90 seconds to uh, uh, to make it happen. And, and this thing is going to take, you know, two decades. But uh, I still think the game still doesn't have a proper name yet. You know, I, I own the trademark for five ball, which is like the, the absolute simplest thing I could come up with because it is a five-in-a-row game. And uh, friends of mine have said, well, you know, games like Shut the Box and Connect Four have succeeded without exotic names. So, you know, other people said, why don't you just call it Rob's Game or, or Nelson's Game or, you know, Trafalgar Square or something. And uh, if any of your listeners have any ideas, they can, uh, <laughs> they can send me a note and I'll give them an autographed version of it when the game finally gets out there. Uh, okay, so so uh, so this board game, and, and apparently you're saying it was actually awarded something by the Men- by Mensa. You know, it was in I'm going to say the middle '90s. They have a thing called the Mensa Select Award, and there were five games that won. One of the games that won was a game called Apples to Apples. Oh, I know. That, that, yeah. com- that company has sold 10 million games. Yeah. So I'm waiting. I'm waiting to be the next apples to apples, and I was delighted for the success of those guys because it it told me that it was uh, you know that I had some credibility uh, in, in terms of the creative side of things. But uh, <laughs> who knows? I uh, I'll just keep keep hoping that Mensa is going to uh, be a good luck charm for me. Yeah. Now, uh, so so what's a, what's another idea uh, that you're. Uh... Uh, well, I own a trademark on a letter-based lottery game called Lucky Letters, and just as Sudoku games are kind of crossword puzzles for, for number geeks, Lucky Letters is a lottery-type game for people who are letter freaks and making different combinations. And uh, I've pitched it to a couple of state lottery commissions, and I still think I'm going to have some success with it. But again, that's another idea that is just, I have to just keep pounding the pavement. And, you know, maybe it's going to be Rhode Island who says, you know, let's give this a try. And then from one little New England state, everybody else will get on the, the Lucky Letters bandwagon, and, and it will be the uh, the Big League Chew of lottery games. I mean, it, it's hard to say. As you can tell, it's sort of all over the map. <laughs> so let, let me, what is your, what do you, what is your job title at this point, or what is your? I, I, I mean, it's bigger than that, I guess. Like, what is your career? Are you are you an inventor? Are you are you a captain of industry? As I maybe you know somewhat jokingly <laughs> suggested at the beginning of the of this program. Uh, I I would just say that I right now how can I put it? You know, when my dad retired from the New York City Police Department, he ran for the school board on Long Island, and it was a dollar a year job. And he did it for nine years. And if anybody asked me what my dad did, I would say he's on the school board in Massapequa on Long Island. And my point is that 
what 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 he did for money didn't matter really. Uh, he was just pursuing things that he really liked to do, and also things that really mattered to him. He had three sons that had gone through the public school system there, and he was proud of that, and he wanted to kind of give back to the community, and, and, and he did so in spades. For me now, you know, I'm a gym teacher for a, a, a couple of afternoons a week at my kids' elementary school. Uh, I kind of mentor a lot of younger people who want to know how to do basically what I was lucky enough to get to do, so I, I don't mind doing that at all. And I'm always working on my next idea. So I would just say, uh, am I an inventor? I don't know. Uh, uh, my job description, I guess, would be lucky guy. Lucky. <laughs> well, that, that's. Uh, I, I think that you know. Before we go, I want to kind of ask you about that. Um, I mean, it does seem like if there's anything that's sort of, I guess, um, you, you know, if there's kind of a through line or a, a connecting idea. Um, that would you know that would sort of sum up what you you know what you've been able to do you know during your life. Um, it's that you know in some ways yeah you've been lucky but you've also been able to kind of follow through and realize some some ideas that you've had that you know that started off very much like that you know like a handshake and a bullpen. And I, I guess I'm uh, what is it you know what was it that you would offer something what's what would you offer someone uh, you know a younger person who had aspirations of you know doing this or that um, I mean and what do you think it is that you did uh, you know, to realize those ideas. Is it really just a question of being lucky, or are there things you can do to, you know, to some degree to control your own fate? It's a good question. I, I, I really think it goes back to when, when I finally got into Cornell and, and got a degree in philosophy, I knew that when I got out of college, I was probably going to have to tend bar or go back to the master's in teaching or something because I knew that I wanted to travel, but I also wanted to pay off my own student loans and I wanted to be able to be self-sufficient. But I don't remember doing any job interviews when I was about to graduate because I knew that there was really nothing going to be out there for a guy with a bachelor's in philosophy. So I think if I had any advice, it would be that, you know, pursue stuff you really like to do, make sure that you can find some kind of work so you can pay your own bills, and don't be afraid to take some chances. I mean, when I got the chance to go to Cape Town, and ended up teaching sixth grade over there. I still keep in touch with those kids. They're going to be 50 years old in, in a year's time. And uh, thanks to modern technology, uh, they all remember, you know, 1974 when, when Mr. Nelson was 25 and they were 12 and a half. They all remember how much fun we had. You know, and those were smart kids. I mean, when I went to Cape Town, there was no TV there. And the kids had probably read more books than I had. And, and, and that's not an exaggeration. But the, the just I think the energy that I had, that this is uh, a, a life worth living and trying different things, and don't be embarrassed when you don't succeed, because you never know what's going to happen. I mean, when I came here and tried out and had one good outing and then got hammered uh, the next time out, I remember saying to Bing Russell, I know I just pitched myself off of this team, but I'm not going back to the East Coast. I'm going to stay here. Can I sell tickets? Can I throw batting practice? Uh, can I park cars? Uh -huh. And the funny, the funny answer to that was yes, yes, and yes. And I did all three things. And uh, and and I just absolutely love that opportunity. Uh, I would like to say just one other thing, if we've got time. But one of the Bat Boys on the Portland Mavericks was a kid named Todd Field. And when Todd, as a 15, 16-year-old, saw 
the kinds of fun that these alleged grown-ups were having playing what I guess you could call fifth league baseball, you know, to put it in kind of a British football comparison, but just playing single A ball and having the time of their life and just enjoying each other's company and trying to play well and trying to get a chance to move to move up. He never forgot that. And he ended up becoming a writer and a musician and then a an actor and a director. I mean he's been Oscar nominated twice. He's been in about fifty films and whenever I read interviews about Todd, he always said that he basically saw the light when he was a bat boy in Portland, Oregon. So that's kind of the, 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 the gospel of the thing is that, you know, pursue stuff you like to do, be kind to people, and always have your eyes and ears open because anybody out there can help you in some way if you're willing to help them. I mean, it's kind of a cliche. In some ways, I feel like Forrest Gump. Yeah. But, but that's, that's, I mean, that's, I mean, it's really, it's word for me. I mean, I can't believe it's literally been half my life really started paying my student loans and up until she was paying my age. But to 30 up to 62 in a blink of an eye, you know, I, I, I still like about, you know, 26 or 28 years old. I still have that goofy, you know, my wife says I'm not childish, but I'm extremely childlike. And I think that that's not a bad, not a bad thing to take with you. No, it's not. Hey, uh, well, Rob, we're going to let you go, uh, but thank you uh, for joining us here on Fangrass Audio. Uh, my pleasure. Really fun talk to you. Hope to see you uh, back in the great Northwest sometime soon. Yeah, all right. And that has been Rob Nelson. I have been Carson Sestouli, and this has been another white-hot episode of Fangrass Audio.